Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You are listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. Hello, my name is Nora Hawkins, and I'm a research assistant with the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. I'm back in the studio with Mark Kreswick for the second part of our podcast today. Mr. Kreswick is the Eastern Region Deputy Director for the Sierra Club's Beyond Coal Campaign, a national effort to transition the electrical sector off of coal power. He was previously an Associate Representative on the Corporate Accountability and Finance team. His work with the Sierra Club began as a local organizer for the Beyond Coal Campaign in Iowa. In Iowa, he also served as Acting Director of Iowa Interfaith Power and Light, an organization of people from Christian, Jewish, Muslim, and other faiths, all collaborating to tackle the problem of climate change. Mr. Kreswick graduated from the University of Iowa. Mark, thank you for joining us. In the first part of our interview, we talked about your work as a community organizer in Iowa and on encouraging investment in clean energy. In the second half, I'd like to focus on your more recent work with the Sierra Club's Beyond Coal campaign. The Sierra Club recently celebrated the closure of its 150th coal-fired power plant. In your experience, what has enabled the Beyond Coal campaign to be so successful? Well, thank you again, Nora. I'm looking forward to this conversation. So one of the great things about working for the Sierra Club is that we have just about every tool in the tool belt when it comes to campaigning and the environmental movement. So as a truly grassroots organization, our members are our most valuable asset. Some of them put 30, 40 hours a week volunteering for the Sierra Club in these issues to make cleaner air, cleaner water, places for everybody to enjoy. And some of those volunteers, they've been living in their communities for over a decade, two decades, three decades. They remember the governor or a senator when he or she was just a local city councilor or the state rep from that area. That's our power. It's our organizers, our volunteers, those people on the front line. We also have incredible lawyers, brilliant communication staff and strategists who figure out how to organize online, advocates in D.C., and a great group of donors and supporters who allow us to do all this work with their generosity, like Mayor Bloomberg of New York City. It has taken all of that to win, and as a grassroots organization, anyone can join and be a part of that. That's what I love about working for the Sierra Club and the great work we've been able to do. That's great. As we talked before, um, I was an intern with Sierra Club this summer, and so much of what you just mentioned definitely rang true in my experience. And what I found this summer was that the Sierra Club really utilizes a unique combination of the politics of pressure to compel politicians and utilities to take a course of action and the politics of persuasion to convince decision makers to make a specific decision. What do you perceive as the benefits of the politics of pressure versus analytical arguments being used in the clean energy advocacy world? Well, you can't win without power, and you shouldn't win if you're not right. So we spend a lot of time and effort trying to really make sure we're advocating for the most efficient and effective policies to deliver clean air, clean water, and a healthier planet that we can. And so so we can be sure that what we promote is actually grounded in sound science and good macroeconomic analysis. But most of the time, there are powerful entrenched financial interests and companies that are willing to spend millions of dollars with misinformation to the public and to the media, countless numbers of lobbyists in D.C. or in Hartford saying stuff that, frankly, isn't true. They can and do spew that misinformation all the time. And we, we don't have money to combat that, enough money to combat that. We can only win with people power, right? 
So overcoming money in politics is difficult, but it can be done when individuals like you and your experience join together to organize, vote, hold their elected officials accountable. So we spend most of our time helping our people do that. What type of politics do you find yourself using more often in your role as the Eastern Regional Director of the Beyond Coal Campaign? My job is mostly making sure all of our capacities are working together efficiently and effectively to build power and win on our campaigns. But I'm also responsible for making sure we're advocating for the right things. So we're doing robust strategic and economic analysis every day while also supporting our lead staff, our volunteers on the ground, and doing the incredible work of organizing, working with people in those communities that are feeling the brunt of and dirty air and dirty water. So it's impossible to separate these political strategies. And if you try, you're not going to win. Definitely. Well, you've worked both on the East Coast and in Iowa on campaigns to shut down existing coal-fired power plants and to prevent the development of new facilities. Which type of campaign do you find to be more challenging, and how do the tactics differ? I have to say, um, it's really not comparable. Um, When you are replacing coal-fired power plants with energy efficiency, wind and solar, delivering new jobs to folks, um, you're actually working on companies who have uh, been in those communities for decades. You've got workers who are supporting their families with jobs at those companies. Local governments that depend on tax payments to keep funding their schools and fire departments. Civic organizations that have been receiving donations from these companies uh, to support economic development and social programs for years. Um, Not to mention the fact that we've literally built the electric infrastructure of this country, crucial energy infrastructure that is necessary and vital for our economy and for everything we love. Um, they've, it's been built around these facilities. And you're asking people to change the way they've done something for decades, asking utility regulators who have never had to deal with these problems until now to hold those companies accountable for things they've just never had to deal with. All of that institutional inertia is really difficult to overcome. Um, and all of those things are legitimate and necessary. And so if we don't, but if we don't do this, right, if we don't succeed, uh, More people will die due to asthma and heart attacks from pollution due to these coal plants. Our drinking water will have more mercury and toxic metals. Our grandchildren and grandchildren will be suffering the worst impacts of climate disruption, more intense hurricanes like Sandy, more frequent droughts, floods, and wildfires. And we won't have clean, reliable electricity and new jobs from wind and solar. For me, that's enough urgency to help work to overcome those barriers. But it's not easy. Definitely. You mentioned just now, you know, changes, impacts to the local economy of shutting down a coal-fired power plant, and especially what do we do about the workers who might be leaving this plant. Um, in my experience, Sierra Club has a pretty wonderful partnership with the labor, labor um, organizations around the country and especially with unions. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so the Sierra Club was one of the uh, founding members with the uh, steelworkers of the Blue-Green Alliance. Um, Blue Green Alliance was a partnership between the Sierra Club and Steelworkers and now grown to more unions and more environmental organizations. Um, and they are advocating every day for the kind of jobs, for the kind of policies that workers really want, right? Workers want to be able to support their families. They want to do a good job and they deserve to be able to do that. Um, and so, but they don't want to be breathing unhealthy air. They don't want their children breathing unhealthy air. When they're working at a coal plant or a factory, a lot of times they're feeling the effects more than anybody else is. They know that they want clean, safe places to work, so we have the opportunity to work with them and the privilege of working with them to make that happen. 
Well, if I'm, as I mentioned before, I worked with the Sierra Club this summer on a Beyond Coal campaign in Seattle, Washington, called the Coal-Free Puget Sound Energy Campaign. Um, and what, much of our work focused on Puget Sound Energy's integrative resource plan, in which the utility analyzed the most cost-effective resources to utilize in meeting their customers' energy needs in the long term. Our argument was that committing to coal for the next 20 years would take Puget Sound Energy down a slippery slope of ever-increasing costs. Do you think there's an opportunity for greater public involvement in these types of technical debates in how money is going to be put um, in the long term towards meeting their electricity needs? What are the most compelling arguments to make to utility companies and regulators when it comes to coal-derived electricity? I can't thank you enough for working on that. Uh, And as you probably found out, it's not easy to engage with utility uh, regulators and companies in these venues. There's a huge information gap. Many times they declare that crucial information that you need to know is confidential business information, and either you can't have access to it or you have to sign a confidentiality agreement to even get a hold of it. But it's incredibly important that customers like you who pay for uh, electricity on their bills right, know what the company is planning. You need to know that, and you need to have a chance to argue that they should be doing something else to keep your electric bills low. And that's what utility regulars are supposed to care about making sure that electricity is affordable and reliable. So that's what you have to talk to them about, right? We need to demonstrate that energy efficiency is the least cost way to meet our electric needs. We need to make sure they understand how wind turbines and solar panels provide low risk and low cost power. When natural gas prices spike, as they have before and they will again, it's going to be wind and solar keeping the lights on and keeping your electric bills affordable. It's true. Right now, in some parts of the country, wind and solar are the cheapest thing you can get. So the wind contracts that Connecticut just signed, uh, they were extremely competitive, even when natural gas prices are as low as they've been the last two years. Coal, natural gas, nuclear are all only getting more expensive. Not wasting energy is always the least expensive, and wind and solar are getting cheaper. Well, that leads me right into the next question I had for you, which is that when Michael Bruin came on board as the executive director of the Sierra Club, the club in general took a much stronger stance against natural gas since methane leaks from natural gas are now raising troubling concerns about the actual climate benefit of this fuel source, and hydraulic fracturing around the country has been having detrimental impacts on local communities. In your current work and your prior efforts on responsible investing, how do you prevent the transition off of coal from resulting in expanded reliance on natural gas, especially when some coal plants are readily convertible to natural gas facilities and when currently natural gas places are so low and it's kind of the go-to? Yeah. Well, most of our time and resources on the Beyond Coal campaign, at least in the eastern region where I work, are actually spent on increasing energy efficiency wind and solar. Every kilowatt hour of energy efficiency uh, we stop wa- or of energy we stop wasting, every wind turbine we build, every solar panel we put on a roof, that means one less kilowatt hour of electricity from something dirtier, more dangerous, and riskier, whether it's coal, natural gas, oil, biomass, nuclear. In that regard, the electricity grid is actually very simple. Those cleaner, cheaper-to-operate resources will displace dirty energy, whether it's coal or natural gas. And when we retire a coal plant, we're making market space for that energy efficiency wind and solar. And we're working every day to make sure that it's efficiency wind and solar that fill that space. This summer when I was talking with utility regulators, one of the 
concerns that they often brought up is that there should be more regulation at the national level in the by the federal government rather than working locally or at state level. And they really kind of pushed that responsibility off. What do you see as the various roles for federal policy versus state regulation versus grass, grassroots action in addressing climate change? And how do we balance those different pieces? Well, the current people in power in Congress are uh, doing their best to shoot America innovation and leadership on clean energy in the foot right at the moment we need, when we need to run the fastest marathon we've ever run. So good policy at the federal level is pretty limited to what the president can do and what the Senate can keep the House from undoing. So for better and for worse, the states are where real progress is going to be made. Connecticut is a great example. Governor Malloy and the legislature nearly undid a decade of clean energy progress this past year by trying to weaken the state's renewable energy standards. But wind power was proven to be cheaper than they expected, and so now we need to take advantage of that opportunity, deploy more wind and solar in New England, and replace that last coal plant in Connecticut in Bridgeport. There's just one more dirty coal plant to go. That's the opportunities for the state right now, and grassroots action needs to be focused there. There's no such thing as effective grassroots action without a decision maker trying to move. And Governor Malloy has the opportunity to be a real leader on these issues, to help Bridgeport transition beyond coal. Bridgeport really needs both clean air and jobs. Governor Malloy and the state legislature can help us get there and help the community grow and thrive without depending on that coal plant. But he needs to hear from you in order to make that happen. Great. Thanks, Mark. Well, given your Im- immense expertise on these issues, I couldn't help but ask you a more technical question. Um, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about decoupling. Lately, progress has been made in a number of states on decoupling, um, which is a policy in which the rate regulated utilities are allowed to charge their customers for electricity is no longer directly aligned with the costs of providing that energy. Traditionally, as you know, utilities have no incentive to pursue energy efficiency since the more energy the se- they sell, the more income they're able to earn. How essential are efforts to decouple profit from costs? Well, I think you've really hit the nail on the head. And Why should an electric company that makes money from selling energy ever want to help you stop wasting energy, even if it's the least cost way to meet our power needs? So companies have a similar problem with rooftop solar as well. It's something we've really got to figure out. And unfortunately, many electric companies would rather fight against energy efficiency and rooftop solar than find a way to how to profit from helping customers with the choices they want to make. So decoupling is one way to remove the disincentive you described, but it doesn't really give the company a reason to be innovative and actually deliver a better product. It just makes them indifferent. And indifference isn't enough. It can actually harm customers and consumer advocates who are a vital part of our electric regulatory system and are charged with defending the interests of customers like you. They understand this, so we're working with those consumer advocates and with some progressive companies on different ways to ensure that electric companies have a financial interest in being innovative and being aggressive about promoting energy efficiency and rooftop solar, just as aggressive as they have been about fighting it in the past. Shared savings is one model where customers and companies split the benefits of wasting less energy, but there are many more. We just need those regulators, those consumer advocates, and those companies to sit down with advocates and try and find solutions rather than publishing reports whining about how energy efficiency and rooftop solar are going to destroy their business model. You've mentioned a couple times some of the efforts we could be making here in Connecticut to move beyond fossil fuels. Can you tell us a bit about some of the campaigns you're currently working on on the East Coast? 
Absolutely. I think uh, developing energy efficiency, wind and solar, I mentioned those great uh, contracts that Connecticut and Massachusetts just signed. Very competitive contracts, some of the cheapest energy that we're going to be getting. And that's going to create new jobs, cleaner air, and new investment in New England. We need to be doing more of that. Um, the Bridgeport coal plant in Connecticut, and in a, a right smack dab in the middle of a community that desperately needs clean air and clean water, we're working to replace that plant with cleaner energy options. And a place like New York, uh, which should be a leader on clean energy, unfortunately has been a laggard. And so we're working with Co Governor Cuomo and administration to find ways to make sure that they're getting the same benefits from wind and solar and energy efficiency, more affordable and reliable electricity, less risky dependence on coal, natural gas. We're working to make those things happen every single day. And it's uh, working with people like you and individuals who can engage in that fight because the grass the Sierra Club is a grassroots organization. You can join and you can help us make that happen in whatever way you want to. Great. Well, going right off of that, can you tell some of our listeners today what are the most important next steps you feel they can take in the transition to the clean energy economy? How can they really get involved in this process? Well, replacing our oldest and dirtiest power plants with energy efficiency, wind and solar is definitely the right place to start. We'll create new jobs, we'll help make New England's electricity more reliable and affordable, not to mention that we'll all be breathing cleaner air, cleaner water, drinking healthier water, securing a more prosperous future for our children and grandchildren that isn't succumbed to the worst effects of climate disruption. Those are the most important next steps we can take, and I look forward to working with all of you to make that happen. Great. Well, thank you so much again for your time this morning, Mark. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for the important work you do at the Sierra Club and for sharing some of your valuable insights with us today. Thank you, Nora.